Good afternoon. I'm Judy Cooper. I'm coordinator of the public programs here at the Pratt Library. I see a lot of familiar faces, and we're glad to see you here this afternoon. Um, I just wanted to uh, mention a couple of things. As you know, it's Black History Month, and we have a fabulous new exhibit in the um, addition, the new part of the Central Library. It's in the back. It's called Created Equal. It's in the corridor that leads to the African American Department. So I hope that you will take time today to go see that. Uh, it covers the, the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington, and Barack Obama's second inaugural. Uh, also, next Saturday, we're going to be hosting a program called For All the World to Hear. Uh, it's, um, it features civil rights activists from Baltimore. Or it's an oral history performance, and it was produced by the Center for Art, Design, and Visual Culture at UMBC. And there are flyers out on the table to, um, with more information. Um, I also want to remind you that we'll be hosting a talk and book signing by Justice Sonia Sotomayor on Thursday, February 28th. The doors will open at 6.30. And we can accommodate about 900 people, 300 up here, 600 down in the main hall. Uh, if you wish to attend, I would suggest that you get here well in advance of 6.30, because we know that we will probably have to turn people away, unfortunately. So today, it is an honor to welcome to Baltimore and to the Pratt Library, Ms. Shirley Sherrod. Am I pronouncing that correctly? As you can see, you have a lot of fans here in Baltimore. Uh, Ms. Sherrod spent most of her career working to improve economic opportunities for family farmers in the South. And she was the Georgia State Director of Rural Development for the US Department of Agriculture. In 2010, as many of you probably know, she was forced to resign from her position because of an out-of-context uh, out clip from a speech she made, which was posted by the late conservative commentator and blogger Andrew Breitbart. Ms. Sherrod was later issued an apology by the Obama administration and offered another high-level position, which she declined. She's told this story in her new book, The Courage to Hope, How I Stood Up to the Politics of Fear, and she tells the story of this, this unfortunate incident and, and also about growing up in segregated Georgia during the civil rights movement and how that helped prepare her for um, what happened to her later in life. Joining Ms. Sherrod for this conversation about her new book is one of the Pratt Library's very good friends a member of our board of directors, and the host of the Mark Steiner Show on WEAA-FM, um, Mr. Mark Steiner. Following their conversation, we'll allow time for uh, Q&A. And we ask that you keep your, there's a, a mic over here, and you can go over to the mic to ask your questions. We ask that you uh, keep your questions brief, and please, no long speeches. Um, <laughs> After the, um, after the Q&A, uh, you'll be able to purchase a copy of Ms. Sherrod's book 
from Mahogany Books, who are out in the hallway, and then be, she will be uh, at the table down by the Humanities Department signing copies of her book. So please join me in welcoming, welcoming Shirley Sherrod and Mark Steiner. Welcome. Good to have you all with us today and let you know that we're um, taping this. This will be broadcast next week probably on the Mark Steiner shows at some point. We're not sure which day yet, but it'll be there. Um, this will be the third time I've had the pleasure of meeting uh, Ms. Sherrod. First was on our show when the book first came out. Then uh, when we did Melissa Harris Perry together in New York City. And uh, now here at the Pratt with all of you. So welcome to Baltimore. Thank you. Um, let's. What I'd like to do is go back and start, because one of the, to talk about Albany, Georgia, talk about how you met Charles, talk about what the Albany movement was, because one of the things this book does, and I think it's really important that you do this in this book, is really describe what it was like, what it meant to be in the civil rights movement, how that formed you, formed both of you. I grew up just south of Albany. <laughs> I grew up on a farm. Um, but we were in Albany often because that's where we shopped. Um, we also supported and participated in the Albany movement. My activism, though, Charles, my husband Charles was in Albany from 1961. He was one of the founding members and uh, the first field secretary for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So he actually came to Albany. He graduated from Virginia Union Theological Seminary, and and instead of teaching and and um, accepting a church, the movement became his his church. So he came to Albany and started the Albany movement. I didn't meet him immediately. He um, I tease him because they started the movement in Albany in. Leesburg, which is just north, and America's Georgia, which is north of Leesburg, uh, where Habitat Humanities International Headquarters uh, were located for years. Um, Worth County, Terrell County, Worth is east of Albany, Terrell is west of Albany, but where I was was just south of Albany. And I tease him because we had a sheriff there who ruled the county. You could not drive into the county uh, if you didn't, if your tag didn't have Baker, which was the name of the county, you were stopped, whether you were white or black. Um, but black people could actually lose their lives, and many of the individuals who were stopped had to pay on the road. So he ruled everything, everything. This is Pritchard? No, this is the Gator. The Gator, the Gator. The Gator. How can I forget the <laughs> yes. Gator? Right, the Gator. Pritchard was the chief of police in Albany. Right. But the Gator was the sheriff. He was the law in Baker County. So that's how I eventually met uh, Charles Sherrod. He came to Baker County um, to help us start the, uh, the Baker County movement, rather, uh, about two months after my father had been murdered by a white man in Baker County. One of the things that you talk about, and I want to get to just the point about your dad, um, was I think people who didn't live in the South in the 50s or 60s or the 40s, uh, who didn't experience that no matter what age, mm -hmm. don't really have an intellectual or visceral sense of the violence that took place. Yeah. 
and of the danger and of the um, of how life-threatening it was to black folks who lived there, not just people coming as civil rights right. workers. It was especially so in, in many of the counties. It was dangerous in Albany, but you had more people concentrated there in the city. When you got outside of the, the major city in the area, in the rural areas, it was very dangerous. I remember, um, and this happened before I met my husband, but he was actually in Terrell County, Georgia, small county. It has a majority black population, um, teaching the people how to conduct a civil rights movement and, and teaching them to, to challenge the system. And one night as he was doing that, the sheriffs from four counties plus other white men, totaling about 12, walked into the church. Um, and he knew this could mean death that night. He said he started the devotion all over again because he was trying to think, and he's a minister. So um, he, he read the scripture and he prayed and he, <clears throat> excuse me, sang a song. We are climbing Jacob Ladder. Well, they wouldn't come on up front while all of this was happening. They stayed in the back. But by the time he completed that, he knew what he had to do. He had visitors. And in addition to those who came in uninvited, there were two reporters, one from the Associated, well, actually three, one from the Associated Press, one from United Press International, and one from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So he said, I want to introduce the visitors and introduce them. And that's basically what saved their lives that night. Now, the sheriff came in, and they're they the sheriffs, and they're cursing and talking about outsiders and, and how they wanted their, their people were satisfied and didn't want and wanted to keep them the way they were. But they left that night and didn't harm anyone inside the church, but they did break some um, windshields and, and slash some tires before leaving. Does everybody here know what, when we talk, I don't want to make assumptions, does everybody know what SNCC was, is? Anybody not know what the, we talk when we say SNCC? Okay, why don't we describe, first of all, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the place, the role it played and who it was for some folks who don't know that, just to put that on the table. Yeah, and these were, you know, when you talk about young people, these were young people who um, basically were um, were aided in and organizing by Ella Baker. You hear them, you, she was their their hero, uh, along with others. But Ella Baker actually helped them to mobilize, to organize and mobilize, and go into the South to to help those of us who were there to fight for our rights. And my husband, as I said, was one of the founding members of SNCC. Uh, yeah, it was the, the, the more radical edge of the civil rights movement. Right. <laughs> <laughs> young people. Young people, that's right. <laughs> we were all young once. Um, <laughs> uh, but, I, but that's important because some of the things happened in that movement that, that you write about, just to kind of set the tone about who you are and who you and Charles are as people mm -hmm. and how you look at it. There's a part early in the book where you talk about SNCC and Stokely Carmichael when he made the very famous speech in 1966 that white folks should get out of the movement and go organize their own and, and leave. And, that, and you and Charles wrestled with that deeply. Yes. Um, my husband had um, 
He initially came in 61, and then he went back to Union Theological Seminary to get his master's. He would study during the, the, school, the nine months of school and come back for the summer to work with us. So he had recruited a lot of, especially seminary students out of Union, to work with us. So those, those arguments were going on inside of SNCC, and um, he and, and Stokely and my husband didn't agree with that. And we had to make a decision whether to send the whites out of um, the movement in southwest Georgia or keep them. Now, we felt they played a vital role in, in helping us um, in those really, really dangerous situations, uh, especially out in the rural areas. So we made the decision to, to separate from SNCC and incorporate um, the Southwest. The, the SNCC's work in Southwest Georgia was called the Southwest Georgia Project. So we separated from SNCC and incorporated the Southwest Georgia Project. And that, that organization is still active today. In fact, the work that started as SNCC more than 50 years ago in Southwest Georgia has continued. So they are actually trying to document now what we've done through the years, because we are the only organization that started as SNCC that's continuing. That's, and that's a really important fact. And, and it's very powerful, important work. The line you use in the book, which I think is really important, at least it was to me when I read it, um, it's just one sentence, or two maybe. We always believed that the movement was inside us, buried so deep in our marrow that it could not be eradicated. Leaving SNCC was merely a transition, not an end. Right, and see, so meant so, well, just about all of the work that SNCC started back during the 60s, you know, those individuals left and went back to wherever they came from or went to other areas. But Charles Sherrod is really the only one who started in 61 and still living and working in the area that he went to more than we celebrated in 2011, 50 years of the movement in Southwest Georgia. It's amazing. <laughs> it's an important part of the story because it has to do with what happened to you in 2010. And part of that story, though, is when you were 17 years old and your father, who was it sounds as if he was an incredible human being. He was. Um, and you came from an incredibly brave and powerful family of black farmers who owned land. Right. That's right. My family, my, my, my grandmother's family, actually, I, I don't know um, exactly when they arrived in Baker County, but I did find them in the uh, 1870 census, so that I know they were there shortly after the Civil War. I don't know whether they were there as slaves or not. But they knew that the important thing, and I, when I speak to young people, and I was speaking to a group of young people in a middle school just Friday, they knew that getting an education and, and buying land were two things that were very important. And they, the family worked together to buy land. And, and that, that, that area, where they bought so much land, it's called was called Hawkinstown back then, and it's still called Hawkinstown. It's where my grandmother, that was my grandmother's maiden name. So. And it, and then it, it, this this. What happened to your dad? I mean, I can. Every time I read it, it's a, it's chilling. Yes. I mean, that just anybody who loses somebody that close, you were only 17. Right. 
Um, and tell, I mean, he, the story I think is important to hear too because it feeds directly into the lies that we're told about you later. Mm -hmm. It's almost uh, 48 years ago next month, in fact. Um, it was a time when, when things were going well on the farm. My father had fought the battle to become the first black person to um, borrow money to build a home. They had, they had made some self-help housing loans, and some of those houses didn't quite come up right. But he, had actually, he was actually successful with borrowing the money to have a builder build his home. And he really, really, really wanted a brick home. But they told him a black person couldn't borrow money to build a brick home. He had to either choose cinder block or, or wood. So he and my mother chose the smallest blocks they can find. If you go there now, my mother's still living in that home. So that was happening. Also, there, I'm the, I was the oldest of five girls. And my father was a farmer, and he wanted a son, son really bad. And every time it was another girl. Now, he loved his girls to death. But, and we all had boys' nicknames. My name was Bill. You know? <laughs> so during my senior year, my youngest sister was eight, and uh, my mother kept getting sick. And we didn't know what, what was wrong. So um, one day at school, my best friend asked me, she, she said, how's your mom? I said, she doesn't seem to be getting any better. She said, girl. Your mama's going to have a baby. Your daddy was at the store yesterday giving out cigars, you know. <laughs> so he told everyone it was going to, this child was a son. He, he started telling the teachers I want him to play ball. You know, he's, all of these plans, you know, the oldest was about to graduate from high school to go to college, getting a new home. The farm was going well. And this, he's telling everyone this is the son. Um, on... The morning of March 14th, we were on our way to church. Now, all of us could drive. I started driving the car up and down the road. I mean, not the road, up and down the yard when I was like four or five. I was driving a tractor at an early age, you know, so we could all drive. Um, but I was driving us to church that Sunday morning when we met this man who murdered, who shot my father the next day. Uh, we met him on the road, and um, so... We stopped, and my father leaned over to talk to him, and he said he wanted to get the, the cow. My father said, if you come back tomorrow, I'll get some others to meet us at the pasture. Because they had had trouble. What happened was in 63, this man had five cow, five or six cows to get out of his pasture, and they ended up wandering over into our pasture. Uh, they rounded all but one of them up. They had trouble getting him, he, getting him, and he just left him there. So he was coming back, he said, to get this cow. So my father told him, we meet, meet around at the pasture at 9 the next morning, and um, he would get help to get him. But when they all met there, they were um, the man who worked on the farm with my father, um, the white guy brought a black man with him, and my mother's brother. My father, we, they all met him there to get the cow, but instead of his one cow, he was claiming five or six other cows in the, in the pasture. And they argued about it, and they, according to the others, my father told them, we don't need to keep arguing, finally, he said that, and said, we'll just go to court. And my father started walking away, 
to, uh, to his truck and turned around to say something and the man shot him. Um, he lingered for 10 days before he finally died. The grand jury refused to indict him. They said it was self-defense. Um, we sued him and of course you still had an all-white jury in Baker County so nothing ever happened. Uh, the, you probably heard during the 2010 event that the Justice Department came in and gathered the records and then they sent us a, a letter in 2011 saying that it was a criminal investi investigation and since the man died in 76 they didn't feel they could do any more with it and just dropped it. A reporter called me just last week and I said you know they could have said for us, for the children, could have said, at least in this case, justice was not served. It would have helped. It would have helped. Mm -hmm. that, that Those are the things, you know, one of the things you talk about later in the book, we'll get to later, is the whole, what you're involved with in terms of racial reconciliation. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to that later because it, it really involves that. Yes. That's what we're talking about. Yes. Um, but th let's, let's talk about 2010 because um, that's, why you exploded onto the scene. I mean, here you were 25 years working with farmers in the South. Mm -hmm. President Barack, Barack Obama becomes President of the United States of America. They appoint you as Director of Rural Development for Georgia, the Department of Agriculture. I mean, this is your life. Your life is working with poor farmers, yes. white, black, whoever these farmers are, yes. to help them grow and live and survive. That's right. Um, Andrew Breitbart. Mm -hmm now passed away, the right-wing blocker, puts out this video of you, takes a snippet, and the snippet makes it sound as if you're saying, I can't, something makes you sound like, I hate white farmers, I don't want to help them, right? Right. <laughs> and, and, um, uh, and, and then your life really fell apart because what happened was the ground was taken out from under you. The people you thought were your friends, that your colleagues, they not only abandoned you, but attacked you. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's it's Joe was so so unbelievable for me. You know, I'd spent my life working to help people who had been shut out, who had been uh, received treatment they should not they had not been treated fairly. You know, and as I talked about in the book. When I initially started, I had made I made a commitment on the night of my father's death that I wouldn't leave the South, that I would stay and work for change. And initially, that commitment was to black people. And uh, that's why when when that white farmer first came to me for help, he was the first white person who had actually asked for help. And this was not long, you know, hadn't been that long, maybe 20 years. 20, 20, 21 years after my father's death. And during all of this time, I'm working on black land loss issues. I'm, I'm seeing black farmers actually lose their land. We're losing black farmers. The Commission on Civil Rights is sounding the alarm saying, if you don't do something about discrimination at USDA by the year 2000, there'll be virtually no black-owned farms. So I'm, I was totally involved in that work, and now I was faced with a white person who came to me for help. Is this Spooner? Yes. This is Mr. That's Spooner. Spooner. So I knew I would do something to help him, but 
as he was talking, and that's what I talk about when I talk about my transformation, so much was going through my mind. You know, I thought, I didn't think until that point white people experienced some of the same problems that black farmers experienced at USDA. Um, I thought he had all of everything he needed to be able to survive. So I knew I would help him. Um, during those years, we were having lots of far, uh, problems with uh, USDA. And it became a real big problem when farmers in, in the Midwest really started losing land. And, and lots of farmers were committing suicide because of the problems they were having. So it was a national problem at that point. And we were fighting along with other groups around the country. So there was an injunction against USDA. And they couldn't foreclose on anyone during the time that Spooner came to see me. Another thing had happened during that time. Uh, chapter 12 bankruptcy had just been enacted. So a lot of, lot of lawyers were not up to date on it, but we had provided training for lawyers because this was a chapter of bankruptcy that was for the family farmer. And it really allowed the family farmer to hold on to his land while he tried to work out his financial arrangements. And in fact, there was a provision in it so that debt could actually be written down for farmers. So when he came, we had just had that training. And one white farmer had been in that train, not white farmer, one white lawyer had, had attended that training locally. So I knew I would take him to that um, lawyer, but in doing that, I thought I was taking him to someone who could help him, and so I describe all of this, and that's how I got in so much trouble, because Breitbart could take my description of what I was thinking to make it appear that I was a, a racist working for the government, refusing to help a white farmer, but this had happened 24 years earlier. It, had, it did not happen during the time I was working for the government. So to, when I first became aware of what he had done, I was actually in a meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, as State Director of Rural Development, uh, with 1890 land-grant institutions. So it was like the Thursday before that Monday when everything started unfolding. I made a presentation, and when I sat down, I checked my email, and someone had sent a note to me saying, you should be ashamed of yourself working for the government and refusing to help a white farmer. So I sat there in that meeting and typed a note back to that guy on my Blackberry saying, that's not my message. I said what my message was. That individual emailed me again and said, it appears someone misrepresented your words. How can I get a copy of the tape? Because I knew, I knew the tape of my speech existed because someone had called the state office and saying it was a great speech. And, and at the individual who called, I knew her, and she wasn't there. So I asked my secretary to call her and find out how did she hear the speech. And that's when she told me it was playing on a TV station locally. So I knew that, you know, I knew they were taping as I was speaking, and I knew also that they had shown the tape locally. So 
Anyway, when I finished telling that individual how they could get a copy of the tape, then I sat there and sent all of that correspondence to the Department of Agriculture, notifying them of the existence of that edited tape by a blogger and asked them for help with dealing with it. This was actually five days before all of that started unfolding, and they didn't do anything. I actually thought they would work with me to help deal with this, but they didn't. And I, I think that this is so critical, all the things that you write about and the, the, human, the kind of person you are, the kind of freedom fighter that you are, that um, the people in the, around the Department of Ag, people you trusted, women you talk about who, was, who you knew and, thought, and told her that there's a whole videotape out there, you can see the videotape, just watch the whole thing. She knew about it. Nobody watched the whole thing. Um, the Secretary of Agriculture then, Vlasic? Vilsack. Uh, Vilsack. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everybody was in on it. Fire you. The White House said, fire you. The N even the National NAACP said, fire you. Nobody looked at this thing. And then they had to backtrack and apologize. Yes. A little, well, a little, a little late. A little, <laughs> little, little, too little, too late. Yes, see, so on Thursday, I notified them. By Monday, by Monday morning, I was meeting with part of my senior staff in western Georgia in a little place called West Point where the Kia plant had located. Um, so I went there feeling good that somebody back at the department was looking into this and planning to try to help me. But by noon, the, they, all of those calls were going into my office in Athens, into Washington, and my secretary called first because she was so upset. So I called to Washington to see if they were doing anything, and they said Cheryl Cook would call me. So my staff went to tour the Kia plant, and they were gone for two hours while I sat there waiting and waiting and waiting and no call. So they came, when they came back, I told them to sit down so that I could explain what was happening. And about the time I finished with that, the phone rang, so I stepped out of the room to talk to Cheryl Cook. Um, Cheryl Cook told me I had been placed on administrative leave, and I was still pleading with her, saying, if you listen to the whole t tape, you'll see that not only did I help that white farmer, but we became very good friends. I kept telling her I saved his farm. This was 24 years ago, but she wouldn't listen. So I said, so what do I do? And she said, um, go home and have a good rest. So I walked back in the room to tell my staff I had been placed on administrative leave. And they kept asking, what can we do? I said, I don't know. I just, I know I have to go back to Athens, um, turn this car in, get my car, and go home. Going back to Athens meant driving three and a half hours. Going home meant driving an, an additional four hours. So um, they asked if we could pray. And I said, yes. So we got in a circle and prayed. And it was on that drive that, uh, in fact, as I was going through 5 o'clock traffic in Atlanta, they told me the White House wanted me to resign. And then um, I had just passed a sign that said uh, Athens was 30 miles when the last call came in saying uh, they want you to pull to the side of the road and use your BlackBerry 
to submit your letter of resignation. Uh, and I kept asking why. And uh, they said, she said, well, when Glenn Beck said you were the subject for his show tonight, that did it. And I was pleading again, but finally I said, you know, you haven't heard the last from me. And we hung up. So I, I sat there by the road and typed a letter of resignation. And I drove on to Athens to get my car. I went by my secretary's house and gave her my ID, my keys, everything I thought they would want from me. And then I was on a four-hour drive home. By then, it was on the news, and um, everyone had heard about it. And I knew everybody thought I was this terrible person who was working for the government and received and refused to help a white farmer. But if the people at USDA had just, I guess they didn't care, but if they had just taken a moment to think, at rural development, you don't even deal directly with farmers. The only direct contact I would have had with a farmer, and I wouldn't have had it, it would have been the people on staff, is if they had decided to add value to a crop they were growing. For example, if they were going to take peanuts and make peanut butter, then and only then would they come to the agency to try to get a loan for a different kind of business. Rural development did not, and they still do not, fund any production agriculture. So I don't know what, what was on everyone's mind, but there would have been no reason for me to refuse to help a white farmer or any farmer because I didn't deal directly with farmers. Rural development is the only agency that can build a whole city. So it would have been sewage, it would have been housing, it would have been libraries, it would have been schools, it would have been other things that make up a, t a city, not farmers. One of the things you do, I think it's important to kind of take this to a different place, not a different place, but the place you come to in the book. Um, because they did come after three weeks later and apologize and want to give your job back, but you wanted no parts of it okay. See, <laughs> at that point. What happened after I arrived home, well, actually before I arrived home, and you have to know that that drive was, that drive once I was in my car was really something. That road from Athens to Macon, Georgia, it's two lane uh, until I could get to Interstate 75. So it's dark, there, you gotta look for deer, <laughs> people are calling you. My thoughts are on, you know, my granddaughters, you know, they were so proud that their grandmother was working for President Barack Obama, the first black president. So every weekend I drove home and I'd have to have a meal with them so we could talk. And so now I've got to go home and face my granddaughters, you know, go home supposedly in shame. But I knew, I knew I would fight back. I knew I had not done anything wrong. Now, whether I could get cooperation in getting the story out, I just knew I, if I had to tell it to one person at a time for the rest of my life, I knew I would do it. Um, by the time I pulled off Interstate 75 on Highway 300, which is the highway leading into Albany, I talked to my husband again, and he said a reporter from CNN had called and one from the Atlanta Constitution. So I said, tell me, I, I asked him for the reporter's name from CNN, and they played the tape the next day with the message that I left. Once I arrived home, it was after midnight, 
I actually called the young man in Atlanta at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and got him. And I told him, if you want the truth, I'm willing to talk to you. He said, I want the truth. So I told him, and he said, I knew there was more to this story. So he actually put something on the wire that night. And then the next morning, Morning Joe with CNN called, and, um, and I talked to him, and there were all of these reporters in my yard. I mean, it was the big uh, satellite truck from CNN. Uh, it was just awful. And my phone, every phone we had was ringing. Um, I agreed to do an interview. I think his name was Tony Harris. He came on at 11 with CNN, because they had the big satellite truck out there. So we did that interview from inside my house. And um, it was during that interview that he said, wait, we have someone here. I didn't know what he was talking about. But the next voice I heard was the voice of Eloise Spooner, the wife of the white farmer. They didn't know that they were the white family I was talking about. But they knew what I had done for them. And they were calling to say what I had done for them. And it was one thing for me to tell that story. But it was a whole different thing for them to call in to say what I had done. You know. Southern white farmers. Yes. The, yes. The, and and this, is, this is the twist, I think, is so they really grabbed me in this, and just think that your whole story, and when you wrote the piece in the book about uh, the, the Republicans in the South, mm -hmm. the Republican Party in general. I mean, here you are, let me just put it on the table, because I've been wanting to ask you ever since I read the book. One of the things that seems you're saying in this book, when you, when you talk about Haley Barber, who's the governor of Mississippi, a uh, Republican who was saying how he didn't think segregation was so bad that the white citizens councils were really just good upstanding citizens trying to help their state and their and their and their and, and the country. Um, and you and you look at all the statements others have made, there is something that people don't like to talk about. And and I and I'm asked, I'm saying this not to say that everybody's Republican is a racist. I'm not saying that at all, by a long shot. Um, but there's something about the racists that came out of the South that ended up being in the Republican Party that are connected to the Andrew Breitbart's of the world mm -hmm. um, and the power they have and the fear they put into everyone else in politics. Talk, give, talk a little about your thoughts on that, your analysis about that. Well, I mean, we see it being played out all the time. In my situation, no one was willing to look for the truth. No one would listen to me. They were so afraid of what the right was going to say and the spin that they would have on this till they didn't even give me, no, you know, no one called and asked for my side of the story. The NAACP. That was shocking. I, yes. was, I was totally shocked by you that. You know, one. I remember the next morning I'm saying, who are these people? You know, you know, what do they know? What have they done? You know, and because uh, no one, everyone was so afraid about the spin they would put on this story. No one looked for the truth. If anyone had taken the time to think, you know, if anyone had even asked me 
but no one from the administration, no one from the NAACP, everyone was willing to think the worst, you know, and in the end, they were embarrassed. You know, I tried to tell them, but everyone expected me to go home and be quiet. But that, Wrong. I've never, <laughs> never, ever, you know, when someone has done that, and I've stood up for white farmers the same way I've done for black farmers. I can remember going into an office, and, you know, and this is the... The woman who asked me to help this guy was from Baker County. In fact, wanted me to go to lunch at her house before going to the local office, well, the office in the next county with her boyfriend. Um, so her boyfriend and her boyfriend's son were trying to get a loan. We walked into the office. I'm walking in there with these two white guys. And the county supervisor told them, go to a door down the hall, I guess. He wasn't sure whether I was with him or not, but that was one way of getting rid of me. So we walked down the hall, the three of us, and we sat down in the office. So he knew then that I was with him. But what he tried, you know, it was I was sitting here, the farmer and his son. So he tried to turn his back to me to talk to them. But every time a response was necessary, I was the one who responded. You know, so they didn't get <laughs> So finally he realized he had to deal with me. You know, and I've been in situations like that for white farmers. I remember with a black farmer. You know, the county supervisor is threatening to foreclose on this, the home and the farm. The farmer's wife is sitting there crying. And this guy's just going on and on and on. I'm trying to give him the chance to finish what he's going to say, but he wouldn't stop talking. So I stopped him and said, will you put that in writing? Because I knew one of the things I had to do was learn the regulations of that agency better than the people they had working in those offices. So I knew he wasn't saying what, you know, what the current regulation was, and that's why I stopped him and said, will you put that in writing? Well, I want you to know, he sat there and pushed his chair back from the desk and started looking at the floor. He eventually <laughs> turned his chair all the way around, looking at the floor, and then looked at me and said, I ain't put nothing in writing. I wish to this day I could remember all of the things I said. <laughs> I, I wish there had been a taping of it. <laughs> but I want you to know that he left the agency. I was on him so and with everything I could bring to bear. And that farmer and his wife still own that farm today. You know. <laughs> And, and, and that was your work with the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. Yes. It was what you did for 25 years yes. before you took the federal job as an appointee of President Barack Obama's. Right. Right. Um, and so, that, I mean, I did say that because it's your devotion to agriculture, to helping small farmers, that's what your struggle has been about. That's how yes. you translated your struggle about human freedom into that work. But let me tell you something. Growing up on that farm and picking cotton and doing all that work, I vowed that that was agriculture was the last thing I ever wanted to have anything to do with. But you can never say what you'll never do. As you, you wrote that. The, you wrote that line in the book as yes. well. Um, it, and so here we the, 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 we need to bring up one piece that is an important piece, and here's the Pickford case, mm -hmm. Timothy Pickford, yeah. because all that 
the, what that case meant and how that was resolved just as you were about to take this new job and how it also has reshaped your life now and allowed you to do the work you're doing now. Yes. Well, see, we were losing so much farmland and so many black farmers. We knew that the things we were doing at that point were not getting to the root of the problem. And we had talked about a lawsuit. And when I say we, I'm talking about not only those of us, us in the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, but members of other groups. And some of them were majority white groups that we were networking with at the time. And I can remember we had had a meeting in Atlanta, and this was about 1990. And uh, we made the decision that it was necessary to file a lawsuit. So we had a nonprofit law firm out of, out of Minnesota involved and one out of North Carolina, and they decided they would be the attorneys for this case. So they, said they did a FOIA request to get the information on complaints that uh, black farmers had filed, and they sent a note back saying they didn't have any. Well, we had to file a lawsuit just to get them, and uh, they finally sent 55 boxes uh, and that's, yes, we did six test cases, and this was prior to Pickford. And, um, and then what happened, and you have these lawyers who can be crooked. One lawyer out of Texas, after most of that work had been done, actually went to those farmers, and they didn't know. He, they, he got them to sign a retainer. So he had those cases. He was later disbarred because of some of the things he did in that case, in those cases. But it laid the groundwork then for Pickford. And one of the things that had to be dealt with is the statute of limitation. So Congress had to actually deal with the statute of limitation for the Pickford case to go forward. And they used the years 1981 to 1996 because when Reagan became president, he abolished the Office of Civil Rights at USDA. So if farmers complained, the complaint didn't go anywhere. So with Pickford, any farmer who experienced, and you had farmers who had experienced discrimination long before 1981, but with Pickford, they, any farmer who experienced discrimination between 1981 and 1996 could actually file a claim in the Pickford case. So then the question of going to court or settling, and, and there, were, there were lots of, of issues around that, and some, some black farm groups formed. In fact, um, um, his name will come to me out of Virginia, John Boyd. <laughs> his organization formed during that time when we were trying to decide whether to settle or actually go to court. And we, we knew that a lot of farmers didn't keep the detailed records that were necessary to go to court. So in the end, we agreed to settle. And that meant that you had class, two classes of farmers, class A and class B. If you filed as a class A farmer, and this was the sad thing that, that the lawyers actually described this to us in such a way, you didn't have any farmer trying to get rich. If they could just get their debt written off so that they could get a new start, they, were set, they would have been satisfied with that. So that's how the lawyers couched it to us. If you 
you don't have to have much uh, proof of the discrimination. If you, you don't need to use every incident of discrimination to file an A claim. And supposedly they would get $50,000, they would get $12,500 as tax on the 50, and they would get their debt written off. Uh, with Class B, if you had a lot more uh, documentation of the discrimination, then you could file a B claim and have your one day in court, and that award, there was no limit on the award. Well, most farmers, out of a little over 22,000 of those farmers in what we call Pickford One, most of them filed a Class A claim. Like I said, they were not trying to get rich, but to, be, to have the opportunity to get a new start was what they were looking for. Well, the government wasn't totally honest with us. Um, in the end, the 12,500 that was supposed to be taxes on the 50, that was taxable too and got a lot of farmers in, in trouble. Um, the other thing is if you, they, only, they were only willing to write off debt for the type of discrimination you use. And remember I told you, they said you don't need to use every type, every, every incident of discrimination, just use once. One, so if, if you use one that you experienced while you were trying to get an operating loan and you didn't have an outstanding operating loan, then you didn't get any debt written off. So that was another trick that uh, farmers experienced. Um, and then with the B claim, I was so busy. I was, you know, it was, it was a time you only had six months. You didn't see ads on the radio telling farmers that you could file a claim like you do with most lawsuits. So the burden of trying to get that word out there was on all of us who were activists in the farm movement. So we were busy trying to get that word out to farmers. And it was while I was driving from Alabama one night when I had been in Alabama helping farmers uh, during the day that the light bulb went off with me. Um, my goodness, we were farming in 1981. We can file a claim. The we was New Communities Incorporated during the Civil Rights Movement as we were helping people to exercise their rights. Many of them would get kicked off the land owned by white people. And that's a terrible feeling when you've, you've encouraged someone to be active in the movement and then you don't have a place for them to take their family. So we came up with this idea of trying to build a community. And in 1968, we sent um, seven people, including one was my husband, to Israel to study the kibbutz. And um, the Morshavim model was the better model because with the kibbutz kids, uh, or raised communally, and that wouldn't work with us. So we created a land trust, the first uh, community-based land trust. And if you Google new communities, you'll see some of that history uh, in the US. And um, we got our hands on 6,000 acres of land. I won't go into all that happened, but I'll just tell you that due to discrimination at USDA, we lost that land in 1985. You know, so. We, I, you know, I was so busy helping others, I almost forgot we could file a claim. <laughs> and so I didn't have a cell phone or anything and couldn't wait to get home to tell my husband we could file a claim. We actually had three months left in the process because you have six months to file. And uh, we filed our claim. 
um, prior to the end of the six months for new communities. Um, took 10 years, 10 whole years. Um, just a few things that happened during that pro We were, the wife of the chief adjudicator was our hearing officer. Uh, should have been a conflict there. You think uh, so? <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, two years after our hearing, and she denied us, by the way. Uh, we knew we had won that case when we left the courtroom that day, but she ruled against us, which meant we had to appeal. And the judge had put a process in, in place where he appointed a monitor to hear these cases that would be appealed. Well, the monitor had to recuse herself because we were friends. She was out of Minnesota. So they had to find someone else to handle New Communities' appeal. In the meantime, um, I was reading the paper about two years after that hearing, and the, the name, the, the, hearing, the, the lawyer for the Justice Department, the name had just escaped me, but they were saying this woman had been arrested in California. Uh, she wasn't a lawyer. She was the person who was working for the Justice Department as a lawyer in our case. But they sent us a letter saying, yeah, that she, she actually worked on four cases while she was there, but it won't have any bearing on your case. Um, the, they found someone to handle New Communities' appeal, and it took that individual four years. But he produced a document documenting all of the mistakes that had been made by the original hearing officer. So in 2006, we filed a claim in 1999. So in 2006, he, the chief adjudicator wrote a letter to us saying that um, what they found had merit, but it was an extensive case and it would take some time to review it. And we didn't hear a thing from October 2006 until our lawyer called us on the night of July 8th to say we had won. And uh, she, she was so excited. You know, it had been 10 years. <laughs> so she said, you, you know, Shirley, we won. Did you hear? And I said, no. She said, you want to guess how much? And I said, uh, roses is at least a million dollars. She said, no, it's 12. You know, so. <laughs> and, and, it, and this allowed you to create what you have now. Yes. We, which is really an incredible piece that you've created We now. kept the organization intact, didn't know whether we could, and we had lots of dreams in the 60s, because during that, with that 6,000 acres, we had actually gotten a grant from OEO to do the planning of that community. There were to be three villages. We had a railroad that went through with the spur, so we knew where industry would be located, what kind of farming we would do, the the uh, what kind of educational system. We just planned a whole community. So even though we were kicked off that property, and in fact, when they got us off, they dug holes and pushed our buildings over in them, um, trying to get away, get do away with every trace of us there. We didn't give up, though. We just kept working. We kept working. We didn't know that even when we filed, we didn't think we'd really get anything from this case. So now all of a sudden, here we were, 2009, and we could dream again. So we started looking for land. A lot of people, they want to say that the charades 
got $12 million. The Sherrods <laughs> didn't get $12 million. New communities got the money. And we knew what would happen with that money if we ever got it. We go right back to trying to build. So we started looking for land. And you know God is so good. We were, you don't know in the area, there are lots of plantations down there, but you don't know that they are for sale. We just happened to engage some local lawyers. And the interesting thing there, we were talking one night, and turns out they are distant relatives. Isn't that something? <laughs> so they're trying to be do all of the right things. And they told us about one plantation that was for sale, and we actually went out looking at it. And then someone else said, you should check this other place. And, and it's only about 10 minutes from my house. The, the, the property line for this other place begins at the end of the city limits of Albany. So we went out one Sunday morning to look at it. And uh, the person who was showing it came up from Tallahassee, Florida to show it to us. And he said, he gets, kept saying, y'all should, should put an offer on this place. And um, this place um, <laughs> was on the market originally for $21 million. When we went out to look at it, they had dropped the price to 6.9. So the guy just kept saying, y'all need to put an offer. You need, you know, they did, it, the corporation was holding it. He said, they told us we got to get rid of it. We, it's, you know, we just got to get rid of it. So my husband... We were, there were a group of us. He said, uh, well, see if they'll take $5 million for it. The next day, they sent us a contract for $5 million. So now we had to make a decision between this place and this other one. So we actually got an expert to come in to help us look at both places to make a decision. And he said, you have to get this one. He said, when you look at all of the improvements, you can't go wrong here. So... We, by now, we actually did, uh, got a contract on it, but the word was getting out. So a reporter called our house, and I heard you and Charles are buying a plantation. I said, Charles <laughs> and I don't have money to buy a plantation. <laughs> well, is it new communities? And I said, yeah. Is it the pick from the pick from money? I said, you know what? I wish you wouldn't print this. We are still, I knew we had signed the deal. I, he, I said, we are still trying to negotiate the deal on this place. I said that because I knew they would try to immediately go and stop this. And I called my husband. I said, y'all get ready. We got to close this out within the 30 days we have. So we did that. Now let me tell you about this place. We didn't know the history before we bought it. And my husband, I tell them all the time, Charles and Shirley Sherrod didn't buy a plantation. I wish we had the money to buy a plantation. All of what we've always had always went into the movement. You know, so here we are. My husband is 76 years old, and he gets about $500 from Social Security because his whole life's work was the movement. Anyway, we found that the original owner of Cypress Pond Plantation was the wealthiest man and the largest slave owner in Georgia in the 1800s. And he held the largest number of slaves at that plantation. We actually have a copy of an ad that was in the Macon Telegraph, and that was the name of the paper, advertising the sale. See, he died. He built it. The I went ahead of myself. He, he, um, he built that antebellum home on there 
1851, but he died that year. And he left it to his son, who died um, seven years later. So in 18, he died 18, 1858, and in 1859, they were selling the slaves. So we actually have the copy of an ad in the Macon Telegraph where they were selling the slaves at the courthouse steps in Albany, Georgia, on December 29, 1859. They were selling 150 slaves from that plantation. I don't have all of the history between that time and the previous owner, but we're working on it. Uh, the previous owner um, developed the ability, he created that system for being able to pay for fuel at the pump. So when you use that card, that's the system he developed. So he made, he had lots of money and he poured it into that place. He put $3 million just into restoring that antebellum home. It's really a structure to see. He actually turned the front around to the back. I mean, it's just, he just, I mean, the drapers in it are worth $100,000. He imported wood that had been on the water for years, 100 years, to use it in restoring uh, that facility. But he also built others. There's an 85-acre lake. There are cabins on the lake. There are docks to go out on the, on the lake for parties. Um, so what are we doing with it? We're doing the right thing with it. Uh, not, not having parties. No. <laughs> There's farming. We've actually gotten consultants to come in with us to help plan. So they, and it was just eye-opening because you have all of this wooded land, there's lake, there's ponds. He, he, um, he moved his Aunt Mamie's old farmhouse from 40 miles away there. There are pecan trees. He didn't care about pecan production. We bringing those trees back into production and actually harvested uh, crops from them in 2011 and 12. Uh, and we just planted an additional 110 acres of pecan trees. But we're the consultants are helping us to to form three areas there. Um, one would be the village area where all of the racial healing work, the teaching of our history, uh, and all of the other things that we'll come up with will go into that area. And then the farm area, where we will actually train young people to farm, you know, and, and grow crops. We have to make money to be able to stay there, but we'll also have a teaching facility and the preserve that where the wooded area, where the healing and other things can take place. It will become the destination place for everyone in this country. Lots of racial healing work will be going on there. So, um, I'm really glad I came here to do this today, by the way. I've been looking forward to this for months. Um, I really have. And uh, I was going to say, I, there was a demonstration today, which is why my wife couldn't be here, because she's out there maybe getting arrested. I still have to bail her out. <laughs> I hope not, but we'll see. <laughs> um, but let, let, me, let me do this. We have about a little bit of time left here. I know you have some questions. Um, I'm going to implore you not to come up and give us your life story and speeches, because everybody wants to say something. And you want to, we have to leave time for Shirley Sherrod to sign books. Uh, and uh, so all that has to take place. So, but please, 
Uh, Judy Cooper's there with the mic. Please come up to the mic, um, ask your questions, and uh, we'll keep the conversation going for a bit here. And tell us who you are, if you don't mind. Hi. 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 Um, my name is Dr. Vabron Watts from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I have one question to ask. Um, when, um, when the Obama administration offered you the other position, was it an instant no, or did you have to think about it, or, or what? I'm curious. Well, <laughs> I had lots of questions about the position, and see, I had worked from the nonprofit level on farm bills, you know, we pushing for things in it for years. So of course I was aware of what was in the current farm bill. So um, my question to the secretary when he called me about the job was, what budget is there? See, I knew what was going on. Um, and he said, he, he said, uh, you know, oh, there's 35. I said, to do what? And then when he mentioned all of those programs, my question to him was, what money is there to do any work? And I knew that, that, that part of the agency has been in turmoil since it was created. So it was just a setup, and I knew it. Thank you. <laughs> and, you, and, you and you write in the book about something that's really important, just a quick aside, is, is that there is a long, deep history of racism inside the Department of Agriculture. Yes, That's yes, something that yes, yes. you really hit Still in the book. Still going on. It has not ended. <laughs> uh, Dr. Vivian Newman, my question is about leadership. And I think that you've demonstrated that so fully over and over. But I wondered about the President of the United States, because this is not the first time that someone's words or actions have been distorted. And the, like he said, the stampede after this person, it happened in the case of, of Acorn. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me at least the President of the United States would say, well, let me see if this is what actually happened before I, I jump. Um, and you know he's been compared, I don't know why, to Dr. King over and over. But it's Dr. King who said a true leader is a molder of consensus, not a follower of consensus. And we didn't see that. You know, right. in this president or any other people. By the way, it's the black farmers that I heard first after I heard about your case. And the black farmers said after generations, what they said about you, generations of racism and discrimination against black farmers. Not one person was fired. And that's not true. one. Right. Just your, your assessment. What, what do we need in leadership? Because I think you demonstrate it. Well. <laughs> You know, I think with that five-day advance notice, someone, I don't know whether they were just uh, protecting the president, and they, they tried to assure me he was not part of that decision. I know that they were communicating with the White House. Now, whether it got all the way up to him or not, and, you know, I still support him. I, you know, I've, I've, said, I've said all along he is my president. Yeah, in my case, he didn't quite do the right thing, but that doesn't stop me from supporting someone who's trying to do the right thing. Um, I hope they learned a lot from my situation. Um, he did call. Um, he spent most of the time on that call, though, trying to convince me that he was well aware of the issues I had been putting out there that week. I didn't agree with him on that. And we went back and forth, and he's saying, if you read my book, you'll see. And I just, I just couldn't agree with him 
on that. Not that someone has to live through what we've lived through from the south, in the South. Uh, I just don't think he gets the good, true picture of that and need to listen to some other people, and that's part of the leadership. Marty Wasserman, thank you so much for your story. What an inspirational life you've led, and uh, thank you for the courage that you've exhibited thank and your fortitude. Uh, my question is, after learning about new community, with with all of that um, in 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 the future in 2010, why did you go back to the administration or or start in the administration? I realized you had a you, you want I think you wanted to work for President Obama, and as you look back on this, how do you, how do you feel about that decision? If you if you knew what was in the future, what would you do today? That was really that was a really tough month because uh, so many good things were happening. Um, I told you on July 8th we we heard about the winning the lawsuit. And then on July 30th, and these calls were coming in at night, I received a call from the White House saying I had been appointed as Georgia's State Director for Rural Development. Well, I really didn't want to do it at that point, but we had never had a, a, a black person or a person of color as Georgia State Director, and I knew this was another barrier I had to break. Down and I didn't know if I didn't accept it, then I didn't know how long it would take for that to happen. So I had to do it, even though there was this other thing over here now that was really pulling me. I had to do it, and then I was told I had to disassociate myself from new communities. That was the really, really hard thing. But there was this barrier that needed to be broken, and if I didn't do it, who knows, you know, when they didn't do it during the Clinton administration, you know, I had the, probably the best opportunity at that time to become the state director of Farmers Home Administration. And Mike Espy, who was secretary of Ag and Clinton, wouldn't override um, Sam Nunn, who wasn't supporting him at the time to get me in. So with all the politics that goes on with these appointments, I thought if I don't do it, who knows? And then they knew that they didn't appoint anyone right away after I was no longer there. It took about two years. And they finally, but they had to find, a, they, they just knew that they couldn't follow me with another white person who really didn't <laughs> qualify to be there. So they actually appointed a black person in that position. The door was finally open. Next question. I want to thank you, Ms. Sherrod, for coming. It's such an honor to be here uh, and to be in your presence. And thank you so much for just thank being you. the foot soldier that you are. I'm 24 years old, and to be able to sit and read your life's work and the history and the energy and the love and the time that you've put in, your life's work has been quite remarkable. Oh, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> um, and it, you're just such a legend. You're such a shero to, to me. Uh, and my family, and my godmom, and everyone that's here. And I, uh, reading your book, there was a portion in there when President Obama <coughs> gives you a phone call, and he makes a suggestion, well, asks you, have you read his book? And to me, that was so shocking, and I wanted to know, like, what were some of the feelings that were going through your mind when he, the President of the United States <laughs> says to you, have you read my book? <laughs> Let me tell you, 
I almost forgot I was talking to the president. <laughs> That's why finally, because, you know, here's someone I felt didn't truly understand. And I had read the book. I didn't tell him I had read it, but, you know, <laughs> he's trying to tell me, read my book and you'll see that I understand these issues. And I knew he didn't understand them. So my goal, and I caught myself at one point, oh, he is the president, because I'm arguing with him. And saying, no, you don't understand these issues like I do. And finally, I just ended that by inviting him to Southwest Georgia. I said, you know, you need to come to Southwest Georgia. Has he come yet? He hasn't been there yet. Thank you, Mr. Robinson. Okay. Uh, Mr. Robin H. David Bradley, it's an honor to uh, speak with Thank you. Thank you. I think you know my uncle, Jerry Pinnock, who oh, works for oh, the Federation. Oh, I, I yeah. just, I was with Jerry just Friday. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, I, I just wanted to know your opinion on where do you see uh, the future of black farming and what do you think steps need to be taken so that um, younger people will be interested in agriculture? I think of my grandfather. He had a farm, but now, you know my father didn't go into farming. I didn't go into farming. Now that farmland, you're, you know, you've got gas leases on it now. And I'm mm -hmm. just wondering um, what do you think needs to be done so that um, black farming just won't go, maybe not just because of racism, but just, you know, through time and generation, people get interested in other things. And I was just wondering what you think needs to happen. We are really, truly leading toward, toward a time when we, when we won't have black farmers. I saw Jerry because we were having the 30th annual farmers conference in Albany, small farmers conference. And when I looked out at that group, there were hardly, I think one or two people had brought a young person there. And I said to them, you know, we, we helped a boys and girls club plant a garden back in the fall. And one young child, about eight years old, said, um, oh, I don't eat food from the earth, you know. So, and we had brought some farmers, you know. We had them at state, different stations with food. So we're talking to him saying, well, where do you think your food comes from? He said, from the grocery store. And when we started talking about where that food comes from, he put his hand over his face and wanted us to stop. He said, that's gross, you know. Um, and it's sad that we have kids so living so close to agriculture. And I really got on folks at the conference Friday night. I said, we're going to have to go into these schools and, and really let them see farmers and help them understand farmers and know that there's something really good about being an entrepreneur, a farmer, who, can, who can, can take care of that soil and grow a product that we all can eat. You know, until we do that, I mean, we are, we are fast becoming a race of people who will not be involved in agriculture unless we start doing something about it. Which is part of what you're working, the work you're doing now. Yes, yes. I'm actually, uh, one of the things I'm doing, I have women, you know, I, I used to get on the men because when, when mechanization took place in farming, all of a sudden they didn't need all this big family, all of this, uh, everyone in the family involved in farming. So black women sort of somehow got out of, of agriculture when we should not have been left out of it. Um, I can remember a time a farmer had, you know, I started this farmer's conference there 30 years ago, and um, we had had a session that, that Saturday, and the farmer wanted to talk to me, and I said, well, I'll be in your area, 
next week because I was training a new ag specialist and I told him I would drop by and I went by his home and we drove up to the home at the same time. His wife was in the house, so we went inside, and y'all come on in. And we got in there, she was looking at soap operas. So he, we just sat down, and he wasn't saying anything, and I'm looking at my watch, and you know, wondering when he would start talking. So finally I said, um, how are things on the farm? And he said, oh, good, good, good. Then I, that didn't get it, I said, well, how are things with you and Farmers Home Administration? He said, oh, good, good, good. Now I knew there was a problem. And the problem was he didn't want, even though he invited us in the house, he didn't want his wife to know what the problem was. So we went outside. And that's when I found he's 30 days from foreclosure. You know, so, I mean, it was a case we really had to work hard on. Here she was about to lose everything and didn't have a clue. So we've actually gotten women involved, not just in knowing the business of farming, but in farming. And uh, they are growing vegetables, and we're trying to get a processing center set up so that they can process, you know, get those vegetables in and get them properly prepared and cooled and shipped it to school systems in the area. So we're getting school systems and food directors connected with farmers locally who can grow what they need so the kids have um, vegetables. They're not being shipped from California or New Mex uh, Mexico, rather, or somewhere else, um, and that's all they get. So, uh, yeah, we have women now. That's, I saw some broccoli on Friday that was beautiful, grown by a woman. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So, finally, I, I come back again full circle when you talked about racial reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Take us on that journey for a moment and what you see is needed and why and what you think this new place of yours is going to do. Well, we are actually doing a racial healing project in three counties, Albany being one that's starting. But then the tough work is out in these rural areas. So Wilcox County, Georgia, they are still having separate proms in high school in like Wilcox County, Georgia. A black Georgia. prom and a white prom? That's right. So we have some young people with the support of a few older people, many of them are trying to stop it, but we'll know this, this April, I think, or May, whether this prom will take place, an integrated prom for the first time. They're also trying to, what we try to do is get them to work on a project in the county, and hopefully in getting them to work together, we can talk about racism and, and really um, try to make a difference. That's one county. And another one, Clay County, Georgia, very, very rural. We, have, we are working with the school system and the county commission to actually do a community garden. So we have some white people and some black people actually working to try to make that happen. In Albany, last uh, July, for the 4th of July, they've had... Um, they have had fireworks, and I've never gone. They've had fireworks every 4th of July for 65 years. But last year, some young black boys were fighting. So white people have been very vocal about never going back downtown again for anything. And um, so this racial healing group that we have pulled together, 
want to try to see if the community can make that happen this year. Um, I spoke out at the Marine Corps base, and, and I kept asking somebody, I was, Colonel, the Colonel was there, I said, is that the, is the commanding officer the top person at the base? Because he was so, he's from up in this area, and uh, he said, where do I send an integrated couple, white and black, to church here in Albany? You know, that's an issue in, in where they are comfortable, you know. Um, so we have this group that's black and white. Um, we are actually on March 5th. Everybody's been assigned two or three organizations to bring representatives in to talk about whether we can put on, not what we're calling a fireworks, but it's, um, oh gosh, I actually can remember that. It's all been is. Independence Day celebrating family and democracy. We're going to see if this is going to happen this year. But in working on this, one of the meetings about a month ago, we had a county commissioner there. There was a person, she's a woman, and another woman who works for City Water, Gas, and Light. We had other whites there and black. And so the woman from Water, Gas, and Light was talking, and she was saying white people. And we were talking about the, the different clubs to bring, try to get to a meeting. So when the commissioner talked, she referred to those groups, because they were the white establishment, your Kiwanis and all of those clubs. And so she and this white guy, he took issue with that. I froze when she stood up and started going toward him. I didn't know what was going to happen, but somebody else was between us, and that person stood up too. We worked through it, though. But it finally made us have a real conversation about race, because where the woman over there could say white people, and she was white, and she was saying white establishment referring to white people, it brought sparks. But we're getting there. <laughs> we have a long way to go. Albany is, even though with the civil rights movement from the 60s, Dr. King, they refer to it, to Albany, as his failure. I get so upset with that. You know, uh, there are people who bring groups through the South to these various places where the movement took place. And one per I told one individual, I said, I don't see Albany on your list. So he was beating around the bush, and I knew what he was trying to say. He was trying to say Albany was a failure. So I said, you may as well go on and say, but, but my question to you is, was Dr. King the movement? Right. I said, now, if Dr. King was the movement, yeah, we failed because he left. But the movement has been going on. It was going on before he came to Albany, and it has continued all of these years. Right. Yeah, people don't know that. Or that you had your own Rosa Parks in Albany, yes. a young woman mm -hmm. who refused to get off the bus, mm -hmm. did 60 days in jail. Yes. Well, I think, is it time to sign books, Judy? Is that what we're doing? I, that was yes. So uh, first of all, I want to say, uh, Shirley Sherrod, it's been an honor to share the stage with you. Thank you for coming to Baltimore. Thank you. And you're on the cutting edge 40 years ago in civil rights. You're on the cutting edge today. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>